just a few minutes this morning addressing a series that I began about three weeks ago talking about natural authority versus spiritual power. We recognize that we live in the tension in our world today where there are natural authorities that are trying to invade our spiritual lives. And they're trying to encompass and impress upon us that that those of us who may have a spiritual life, that there are pressures being placed upon us. And, and I wanted us to know that this is not new. In fact, there are some examples that have been given us into the Word of God as it relates particularly to the interaction between prophets and kings that I believe that speak to our lives today. And I'm not going to highlight everything that I said last week. For those of you that uh, were here, you know. And for those of you that weren't, you can go online and you can watch the podcast of that. But I am going to ask that you would turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 26, because today I want to talk about the interaction between Nathan and David. 2 Samuel eleven twenty-six. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of her mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Father, I pray that this morning as we approach your word that you would give to us clarity. It gets so easy to be confused about things and so easy to be confused about messages. And so what I ask is that you would open the door of our heart and that you would sweep away any obstacles that would keep me from being able to, to communicate clearly what you want to say to every heart today. Lord, it is your desire that we would be hearers of the word and that we would respond to this. And I ask that you would guide and direct us. And we pray this in your powerful name. Amen. Last week, briefly, we looked at the interaction between Moses and Pharaoh when Moses, with the prophetic statement of God on his side, looked at Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And we looked at that not from the basis of slavery, that God wasn't trying to have them uh, escape from slavery, as much as it was a statement of God's ownership saying, these are my people. The Hebrews are my people. Pharaoh responded with, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And and, and the danger of all that. And so this battle took place between the two of them, between natural authority and spiritual power as to who the people would belong to. And we recognize today that there is a spirit of Pharaoh in our world. And so many people today say, I belong to myself. I, I own me. And God was declaring through his word, I have the right to be your Lord. I have the right to be your leader and your owner. And so as a Christ follower, it brings us to mind the aspect of, of in so many places today, people are satisfied with just knowing Jesus as Savior. That's all I want. I just want to know my sins are forgiven. I call it hell insurance. Basically, that's what we're interested in. Lord, I just need enough of you that I ain't going there. But I really don't want enough of you to make sure that all of my life choices are surrounded under the direction of your hand. And God is calling us as a people and as a church I'm not just your Savior. I am your Lord. And so that first tension that we felt was the conflict between God's prophetic call to his ownership. The second interaction that we're going to be looking at today is between Nathan and King David. And in the interest of time, rather than reading the entire account from the Bible, I'm going to summarize it for you. 
And I think most of you know the story of David and Bathsheba. In fact, there are a lot of people that know the story. Some of them don't even know it's from the Bible. They just think maybe it's Shakespeare or something. But, but most people know this story. And I'd like to start with looking at it from the perspective of David's unprincipled decisions. David's unprincipled decisions. You can find this account if you want to just turn and follow along in, in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, and you can just kind of look along there. But here's, here's the story. David is king. His army was in the battlefield doing what armies do. They were, they were fighting the battle, and David was alone by himself. How many of you know sometimes we get into trouble just because we don't have anything else to do? I don't know how boredom affects you, but apparently it affects David in a way that his army's fighting. He didn't have anything to do, so he wanders up to the ceiling and roof of his, his there. I have no doubt in my mind that he knew what he could see from there. And so in this downtime, this boredom time, he goes up to the roof, and from there he sees Bathsheba bathing. She is the wife of one of his generals, a general that is serving him in the field where he is supposed to be. And David in this moment has just a little time to think. This was not a spur-of-the-moment thing that he was just over him. He has a little time, and David makes a bad decision. He chooses to have her summoned to the palace, and when she arrives at the palace, he seduces her. Now, I am not excluding Bathsheba because what she did, and I'm not excusing her because what she did was a sin. However, this is a classic case of a man with power and prestige and wealth and celebrity and control who seduced a weaker woman that did not have the, the power to say no and couldn't respond in an objective way to him. This is David's sin. David seduces her, and he spends the night with her, and the next day he sends her home. A few days later, Bathsheba sends a text message to David's smartphone that lights up his day. Said, hey, big boy, I appear to be with child. David, in that moment, then makes a second unprincipled decision. He begins to think in his mind, how can I get out of this? And the best way to do that is let's bring Uriah the Hittite home. And so he summons him back from the ball field or the battlefield and, and tells him while he's there, listen, while you're here, give me the quick report of what's going on. And then why don't you go home and enjoy yourself, spend the night with your wife. And he did this so that he could palm his baby off on the general. And in the middle of this, this general, Uriah, is a more principled man than David was. And it tells us in 2 Samuel 11, 11, the ark, this is what Uriah said, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in open fields. How could I go to my house? And I'd like you to underline these three words that he says. How can I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. So David looks at this situation and sends Uriah back to the battle, and when he does so, he makes a third unprincipled decision. He writes a note 
written out to the general Joab, and interesting enough, gives it to Uriah and says, don't open this, but make sure you give it to Joab. And in that note, Uriah is carrying his own death sentence, and he doesn't even know it. And he goes and he gives the note to Joab. And Joab reads it, and it says, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is the fiercest, and then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. In other words, make him the point person in the hottest place you got, and then give a signal and have everybody that's with him back away so he is there by himself, has no chance to escape, and I can be guaranteed that he will be taken out. And then, when he's dead, send me an email so I'll know that the task is done. Interesting enough, as you read that scripture, you'll notice that the scripture said some of the soldiers that were with Uriah also died because they would not leave him alone. That they got so close to the fighting, so close to the walls that they were killed with arrows and things that were being dropped off. And so there were collateral damage that was done here. After he gets the word that Uriah has been killed, David quickly marries Bathsheba and the nation doesn't want a royal scandal, and everybody just kind of blinks their eyes, closes their eyes, turns their heads to the event, and they begin to move on. The baby is born. It all looks like it's forgotten. seems like it's been swept under the rug. It looks like on the outside, at least, that David has moved on, and he's been able to put it all behind him, and that it's all out of his mind. However, how many of you know that guilt can keep you awake at night? There are many people that battle with tension at night. They can't go to sleep because of the things that are crowding around their mind. And I believe that we are given a glimpse later on in life as David writes about this particular season of life. We discover that he was under much more pressure than we had ever imagined because he reflected on that time in Psalm 32.3 when he writes this. When I kept silent or when I knew I had been living in the wrong and I wasn't saying anything about it, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, for day and night. You ever get the sense that he's not escaping this? For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as if the heat in the summer. And in other words, I am withering away under the guilt of this. So now we look at Scripture, and at least a year has elapsed, and, and maybe two years has elapsed. But he cannot erase the memory of this. And certainly, we need to know that time does not erase things from our conscience. It's a myth for us to assume that we may merely move on from things if just enough time goes by or if just enough time elapses between what happened and now, then we can just forget about it. But when it comes to our own sinful hearts, that is not the case. And in the mercy of God, that should not be the case. And in our text this morning, the final few words that we read were these words. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. God, in his infinite mercy, decided that he would not let David cover up this action. Because, because God loves David. God is not going to allow him simply to sweep this under the rug and avoid it. And therefore, God is determined to address and confront David in a way that will either give him an opportunity to be restored or it will destroy him. And here's where the tension comes from as he is confronted by Nathan. 
David, as we have already alluded to, is being ravaged by a guilty conscience. However, we also notice that his conscience was not bad enough to make him do anything about it. How interesting is that? That he had learned to live with the guilt and maybe even the conviction. And while it made him uncomfortable, it was not enough to draw him to a place where on his own he would reveal this and take it before God. How many times do we get caught in that situation? Where we feel the convicting power of the Holy Spirit because we know there are things within our lives that need to be dealt with. But the conviction is not enough to make us bring it to the Lord. And we just learn to kind of try to live with that. But God is not going to allow this to work with him. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1, there are these great words. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. I could preach an entire message on what it means to be sent with the word of God. But under God's direction, Nathan is about to speak power to truth. And as you can see, it will be quite an assignment and probably one in which Nathan not necessarily wanted to do. In the past, Nathan and David had had the kind of relationship that for the most part, whenever Nathan showed up, David was pretty glad to see him because he was coming with the word of the Lord. And for the most part, he had been the bearer of good news. So when David sees Nathan showing up, he probably was filled with some hopeful expectation. Now, I want you to notice something here, how God addresses an erring child through his word. Nathan was coming with the word of God, and he knew that he must speak what God told him to speak, whether it's a pleasant word or whether it's a difficult word. And you might look at that and say, well, what does that have to do with us today? Well, here we are. Sunday after Sunday, and we say that we are paying attention to the Word of God. And the Word of God comes as a prophetic word. Prophetic not in the sense that it's some new revelation, but prophetic in the sense that it speaks to our lives in a contemporary fashion concerning the issues of our lives and concerning the issue of our day. And God clearly outlines the responsibilities of those that are called to be bearers of his word that you do not have the right to say what you want. You better say what I have said, which is why I always say, if you can't find it in the word of God, we're not going to preach it from here because the authority alone comes from his word. Let me just say this. It is a massive responsibility that I'm not sure anybody would want to be a mouthpiece of God's. Who would ever want to be set apart for that? To be the bearer of the very word of God. And of, and of course, God in his wisdom understands how easy it is for people to reject the word of God based on the vessel that it is coming through. In other words, well, that's just you saying that, Pastor. Well, that's just the word of man. How many times have we seen situations where we're addressing people and say, here's what the Bible says. Yeah, well, that's just your interpretation. Because we recognize the vessel that it come from may be one that we did not want to receive it from. And so we superficially dismiss directly anything that comes from vessels that we don't want to hear from. I have had people tell me, I am re rejecting the word of God that you said because it's your interpretation. And I can find other people that will tell me the interpretation that I want to hear. Every preacher... And teacher of the Bible and every pastor, you need to know this, is a soiled soul. 
We are all soiled souls. It is a mystery that God would use any of us to be a bearer of his word. And we are not made bearers of his word because of the uniqueness of our character or the sinlessness of our life. Having said that, I will also say this. Knowing that people have a tendency to dismiss the word of God because of the vessel that it comes from encourages us to be as consistent as we can possibly be in the life that we live so that people cannot outright dismiss the word of God just because the vessel is flawed. We are made bearers of the word of God by his call alone. And every pastor and teacher and preacher and prophet and evangelist will stand before God to give a personal account of the accuracy with which they delivered, thus saith the Lord, to the people of God. That is as sobering a thought as one can have. Knowing that, we look at the responsibilities of the prophet Nathan, and now God has told him he is charged with rebuking the king. And we will notice that he does so directly, but he also does so skillfully. Nathan the prophet, in the context of this, is coming in to talk to David, and David is in open court. David is sitting as the judge. Oftentimes, cases will be brought to him, and in his authority as king, he has to make judgments on them. So when Nathan comes and begins to speak of a case, it's not unusual. It's not out of order. In fact, it would be very familiar for him. What happened is just David never caught on to what was going on. And so here's everybody in the palace. The court is all around. Everybody is listening to what happens. And it tells us in 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 through 3, that Nathan begins to tell a story. How many of you know if you're a good storyteller, you can get people's attention? And so Nathan, standing before David, knowing that he has to deliver this news, starts it out this way. There were two men in a certain town. One of them was rich. The other one was poor. The rich man had very large numbers of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. And he raised it. And it grew up with him and his children. And then I want you to underline this thought as you read these words. And it shared his food. And it drank from his cup. And it even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Notice the three things that Nathan brings up as he starts this story and remember where you heard them before in chapter 11. This is exactly what David brought Uriah home to do. I want you to go home. I want you to eat with your wife. I want you to drink with your wife. I'd like you to lie with your wife. And Uriah refused and we begin to see how skillfully Nathan brings the word of God as he begins to, to weave skillfully what God is about to accomplish in the life of David. If David had had half a conscience at this point, he might have caught on with just the wording of it, but he didn't. In fact, David's conscience was asleep. He failed to see the story of Nathan and how what he was saying applied to his own life, even though he was being very specific with it. Here's the lesson for us today out of this. When you have a conscience that is asleep, you can read the Bible. You can listen to the Bible. 
You can understand exactly what the Bible is saying to you, and you can remain entirely unchanged by the Bible. Those are the facts if you have a conscience that's asleep. Moving into chapter 12, verse 4, he continues with the story. And he says, Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. And then, in the middle of this story, we see David suddenly burst in anger. And we get to chapter 5, and his response is this. It said, David burned with anger against this man, and he said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and he had no pity. Now, have any of you ever known anybody that reacts over the top? Just about everybody. That something comes up and for whatever reason the reaction is just over the top. I mean, you're looking at... I want you to recognize that David's reaction to this was way over the top. I mean... He is looking at this, and he, he starts out with, as the Lord lives. Well, that's a little pompous, isn't it? David has just spent the greater part of two years living as if there is no Lord that lives. And suddenly, in this moment when he is confronted with a story that gets his attention, he explodes with righteous anger and doesn't even know that it should be directed at him. And then he says this, as the Lord lives, this man should die. Now, stealing a person's one little lamb does not exactly seem like it deserves a death sentence, does it? And so in the middle of this over-the-top reaction, we are reminded of this. We see our own sins most clearly in other people. We can pick out things in others that we know that we may be guilty with. And like David, it is not unusual for us to be enraged by the sins of others while our own hearts are hardened and unrepentant in relationship to the way that we are living. It's much easier to point out the failures in everyone around us and all the time realizing that God's word was first coming to our own soul and we didn't even know it. And skillfully... Nathan delivers God's message in such a way that now, with the response of David, the pathway is clear for him to deliver the punchline. And we see it in verse 7 when Nathan looks at David and said, You are the man. Nathan says to him, Listen. I know exactly what you did. I know that you lusted after that woman. I know that you summoned her to your bedroom. I know that you slept with her. I know the baby is yours. I know it's the fruit of adultery. I know you tried to cover it up by having Uriah come home. I know that you tried to pass off your baby as his. I know that when that didn't work that you had Uriah murdered and several other soldiers died as a result of that. David, you are the man. And Nathan says this publicly. In open court, in front of everybody. This was not a private conversation. And everybody in the room goes silent. Remember, David is the king, he is the emperor. 
He has absolute power and absolute authority. All he has to do is snap his fingers and Joab, who is a bad, bad man, would have pulled out his sword and that prophet would have been standing there without a head for a moment before he fell over. David could have said to him, who do you think you are speaking to me this way? I am the king and I will have it this way. In fact, I in my mind of picturing things, had pictured those that had escorted Nathan into the front. Nathan stands there, tells the story, and says to David, you are the man, and the escorts are going, I'm just going to back up a little bit here. Don't want to get my shoes messy at what I think is about to happen, and they're just going to give a little room for what they think may happen. And I want to note here that David was able to set aside the parable without making any application to himself at all until he was completely uncovered it is very possible for you and I to do the exact same thing it's easy for us to say well I want to lock that story up that account up just in history that is that's a historical account and it belongs there and whatever moral lessons I can learn from that you know I'm not sure how they apply but but let me tell you something, if we fail to make application of this, then we have missed out on an opportunity for God to do something in our life. Because through Christ, Nathan's message moves from the palace to the pew. And through Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, it moves from seat to seat to address each of us. And in Christ, the finger is pointed at each of us and says, you are the man. You are the woman. And we look at that and say, just, Pastor, just wait a minute, wait a minute. I am not a murderer. I did not steal my neighbor's wife, and I didn't steal my neighbor's husband. Surely the application of this parable is for notorious sinners. I mean, like really, really bad people that do really, really bad things. And how can this have any application to the averagely well-respected attendees of Grace Assembly? Well, remember that the Bible unfolds and ultimately Christ confronts each of us first. And on this account, understanding Christ's work through the Holy Spirit, I take this to myself and I bring it to you. If you will remember in Matthew chapter 5, many of you will have remembered this when it says, you have heard it said to a people long ago. In other words, you've heard it said in the Old Testament, do not murder. But I tell you, this is Christ now, I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother, anyone who insults his brother, and the implication here is guilty of murder. It moves on then into verse 27 when he says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, that anyone who looks on a woman lustfully. And let me just add that in the culture that we live in today, any woman that looks on a man lustfully has already committed adultery and is guilty of that in their heart. And so we see with the moving of the message and the confrontation of the Holy Spirit, it takes it out of the context of the palace and brings it right home to set in our own hearts. Yes, all of us are the man. All of us are the woman. And we must make a decision what our response will be when we stand uncovered through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
Nathan goes on to say in verse 9, talking to David, Why? Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing evil in his eyes? How many of you parents have children that you've ever caught them in the middle of doing something and you look at them and you're going, Why? Why did you do that? And they're going, I don't know. <laughs> or let me move that from childhood to where we are. How many times have you been engaged in a conversation? You get back in your car and you close the door and you think to yourself, why did I say that to them? Why did I act that way? Why did I do that? And I will tell you that the real issue in each of those cases is that at some point we despised the word of the Lord. You see, David's actions and ours flow from the fact that he refuses to do what the Bible says. Check it out in our own lives. You will discover that to be the case. So on every occasion where God wanted you to go straight and you decide to make a right turn or a left turn, you can trace it back to the fact that somewhere along the line you knew what the Bible said and you decided that either you knew better than the Bible or you decided that the Bible doesn't apply to you in this instance or that there were some extenuating circumstances that made it possible for you to get special pass on this occasion or am I just describing myself? David's actions reveal the fact that he was willing to set aside the clear commands of God in the pursuit of his passions. I will ignore God's word if I get what I want. And when natural authority of the king comes in contact with the spiritual power of Nathan, sent by God to rebuke him, Nathan says, David, you're the man. And in that moment... I cannot imagine what was running through the mind and spirit of David as he has now been publicly uncovered in front of everybody. He could have reacted to public humiliation in any numbers of ways, but instead David stops for a moment and he breathes deeply and he humbles himself before God and his prophet and he recognizes that in this tension point between earthly authority and spiritual power, he recognizes Nathan has come with prophetic authority. And he stops and he breathes deep. And I would have to imagine that somewhere in that thought process, knowing that he had made unprincipled decisions in the past, he suddenly takes a, a, a moment and says, there's a reason I've not been able to sleep at night. There's a reason I've not been able to escape my own guilt. There's a reason I've not been able to look Bathsheba in the eyes or, or enjoy our baby without a surge of shame as to what I've done. You see, David had learned to put his game face on, and he could go into court, and he could do all the kingly duties, but nobody knew what was going on in his heart. And today he is confronted, and he cannot shake the conviction of God when God is displeased with him. And David stops in front of everybody. And humbles himself and he says to Nathan, I hear it, I confess, I repent. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That was not an easy thing to do in that moment. 
Can I just tell you that yielding your life to the Lord is not an easy thing to do? Sometimes we try to make it really, really easy. The grace of God is free to us, but it costs Jesus a lot and his expectations of us that enter in are a lot. In fact, it's interesting because if you were to read this story in Hebrew, there's two, or there's three sets of two Hebrew words. The first is, I am pregnant. That's two words in Hebrew. The second is, you are the man. Two words in Hebrew. And David's response, I have sinned. Two words in Hebrew. And then David begins the long and painful process toward reconciliation and redemption. Worship team, if you'd please come. So Moses, last week, brought the prophetic word of God's ownership. Thus saith the Lord, I own you. I have every right to be your Lord. Nathan brought the word, thus saith the Lord, I will confront you in your sin, and I will convict you, and I will offer you the opportunity to repent. And then, if you will humble yourself before me, I will restore you. I'm going to ask that you would stand with me, and I've asked the worship team if they would lead us in this course, and then we're going to prepare for an altar response.
I'd like you to open your eyes and look at me for a moment. I believe that there's a few key things that Nathan and David in this tension reveal to us. Number one is that some of the things that we are suffering from are self-inflicted. His problems were brought on by his own unprincipled decisions. There are those of us this morning that are facing consequences and suffering from some of the decisions that we have made about our life. David also shows us that you can love God. Listen to this. You can love God and still not give God large areas of your life that you will ever submit to his authority. How many times have you heard people saying, I love God, living in absolute disobedience. They said they love God. You, you can love God and still not let him be Lord. In fact, David had allowed sin to build a position of strength and power in his own heart until it led to a place where he was doing things as an adult that as a young man he never dreamed he would do. As a young shepherd, he never ever thought that his life would lead him to some of these things. And lastly, this is important. David shows us that God can be displeased with our behavior and still love us. Listen to this. We live in a culture where people are constantly telling us, well, God loves me. Well, God loves me. He absolutely loves you. My parents love me too and still disciplined me. We've got this idea that if you love somebody, you never confront them with truth. That if you love somebody, you just go along with it. God shows us in his words, he can love you and still be displeased with what's going on in your life. And prophetically, David is confronted by the prophet and his sins are uncovered by God's word. And we know that in Hebrews 4.12, it says, for the word of God is alive and active. The word does something. It separates us on the inside. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It judges our thoughts and our attitudes. His word confronts. Not to leave us in our guilt and shame, but to bring us to a point of decision where we can say, like David, I'm humbled and humiliated by my sin, O oh God. I hear the prophetic authority of your word, and all I can say is, I have sinned. I have sinned. No excuses, no justification.